Welcome back to our Q&A time. Uh, first question says, uh, design law is quite apparent on planet Earth. It explains a great deal about our lives. But beyond us, out in space, there seems to be random acts of nature that defy order. Meteors crashing, asteroids threatening our extinction, stars exploding, black holes, and on and on. These events appear to be without design of a loving God. Um, so my first comment is, we... Um, all of these are happening in harmony with the laws of gravity and ma- magnetism and electricity and and uh, and anything we observe like that are inanimate, um, non-sentient um, um, forces of nature. Uh, and uh, you could uh, so I would suggest a couple of things. We don't know enough about the, how the rest of the universe functions to be able to interpret that. And secondly, there's no evidence that any sentient beings are being damaged or harmed in that process. And so um, I, I don't have a problem with those things at, at this point in time. I have to have more evidence to be able to make a conclusion about that. See, previous I says so. So the question is why Satan? Why such randomness of destruction uh, in the universe beyond Earth? I just commented to that. Uh, also, give the, given the speed of light and the turn of light, in turn of light years of distance in space that we can observe, do you believe that other inhabitants of the heaven are living on a different plane? Um, and this is, of course, speculation. And there's a, there's a couple of Bible texts, I, or at least one Bible text I can give that would, would, would support my speculation. Okay, um, and that is with the day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Um, so my, my personal speculation is that after Adam he sinned, um, the the planet Earth and what we are able to interact with uh, is put in some type of a time dilation field, um, in which time passes at a different rate here on Earth than it does in heaven, and. Uh, maybe seven, eight, nine thousand years or so since Adam's fall. It may only be six or seven 24 hour periods, days in the rest of the universe. So that it's very quickly being resolved for the rest of the universe while it is taking more time here on this planet. Uh, this is, this is my speculation and I'm 100% open to be wrong on that. And it's not dogma. Um, but there's a, there's a, a basis and a thought for that. We will know when the Lord comes. It also would um, give some insight as to to where the you know angels step in and out. <laughs> they step in and out of that time dilation field, and we see them, and then we don't see them because they're moving at a different rate through time than we are. So uh, anyway, uh, the next question: in the end, in end times, we are told uh, to come out of Babylon, my people. Satan's claims to own this world. Imperial laws, commonly known as civil or uh, legal law, and we can uh, trace it back to Cain, the first city uh, through Babylon. Pagan emperors down through Rome, ancient and religious Vatican, empires and its law continuing to today, governments and so forth. Um, Wouldn't it make sense to remove one's allegiance or citizenship from a fraudulent government if we want to align ourselves with God's government rather than the imperial uh, citizenship? So my question is, could removing oneself from the citizenship uh, vessel, taking a stand as a living man or woman under common law rather than... uh, being considered a thing or chattel uh, of a corrupt government to be part of the uh, coming out of, could that be part of coming out of Babylon? So, um, yeah, I think they're saying, should we renounce our legal citizenships and governments in order to come out of Babylon and just live under what is known as common law rather than any uh, state or, or, or societal law? And my view is that um, the idea of not, uh, that we are in the world but not of it has to do with identity, heart, values, not legal. Legal status. Paul was the champion of the of the Protestant, no, excuse me, the Christian movement, and um, 
And he did not renounce his Roman citizenship. At one point, he utilized his Roman citizenship um, for a particular cause and, and, and action. And so I don't think it's necessary to renounce a civil citizenship in order to, but it is necessary to have your heart circumcised away so that your allegiances and loyalties are not to human governments. Your allegiances and loyalties, you identify as, I am a son of of the most high. I'm a daughter of the most high. I'm a member of a different kingdom than this kingdom. Uh, while you still recognize on earth that you're part of whatever nation you're part of that. That's my view on that. Uh, a separate question, the, the words war between God and Satan, the great controversy battle between Christ, and Satan to me, these imply that like with any battle, there are soldiers on each side causing death and fighting. That's to me a contradiction and is used so often. However, it doesn't appear to be true reflection of God as a God of love. How else can we express this more fully? I think this is part of the limitation of human language. In the Bible and Revelation, the word that's, uh, there's war in heaven is polemo from where we get polemic. And it was a war of words or war of ideas. Uh, Satan did not pick up a lightsaber and start you know, trying to um, you know hack away angels' heads or something in heaven. That's not how the war unfolded. It was a war of words or ideas. He's the father of lies, and this is and thus the Bible says that we live in the world. We don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons use, we use are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, and we don't demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So yes, this idea of war can make us think of of human types of actions, but the Bible uses the same language because it is a war and it's a life and death war, an eternal life and death war, but the weapons are not um, physical weapons. They're weapons of truth, love, freedom, uh, weapons of God's um, character, methods, and principles against the methods and principles that are to operate in our hearts and minds, ultimately winning us to loyalty to one side or the other. And everyone will be marked as loyal to one side or the other. The Bible calls it the seal of God in the forehead for the righteous, the mark of the beast in the forehead or the hand of the, of the, of the wicked. But everyone identifies with one of two systems and, and, and solidifies their heart and mind and character by the methods that they practice and who they trust and who they become like. So, um, yeah, it is a war. I don't know of any better words to use than that because it is life and death circumstances. But it's, a, it's very well said that we need to be careful not to be drawn into thinking because this is part of the king of the north coming. The king of the north coming is, is, if you remember, king of the south represents godlessness, uh, uh, Egypt, who is God that I should know him, king of the north, Babylon and Rome, religious imperialism, beautiful land is in the middle, okay? And and the king of the south pushes against the king of the north, and the king of the north storms out against him, and then Michael stands up and the prince comes. And so we're seeing right now all this leftism, godlessness, communism, all this stuff, that's that's king of the south attacking, and you're seeing, and the king of the north is about to storm out. That's going to be religious imperialism. That's going to be a bunch of people claiming to advance the, the principles of Jesus or Christianity or God, but they're going to use the same course of methods of the world, and it's going to be real important that we don't buy into waging war the way the world does, that we wage the war the way... Jesus waged the war, and you look at his life and how he dealt with it. Okay. Um, Thank you for the great work you're doing. My question is, what is the difference when the Bible talks about the heart and mind? Is there a difference between the two, or are they the same? And is there um, um, such thing as a subconscious mind? Uh, So subconscious mind, I'll answer that one first. Yeah, the subconscious mind is all the activities outside of your awareness. (laughs) Okay, so you can't consciously be right now aware of everything that you know in your head. (laughs) 
Okay. So there is a subconscious mind going on. Yes, there is. And it's all the other processes. Uh, some people call it left brain is conscious. Right brain is, is unconscious. They'll say right brain works at a higher, um, um, pulses per second than, than, than left brain does. Uh, and so right brain, you can become aware of something before you're consciously aware of it. Your individuality, your consciousness rides in the left side of your, your head, left brain, where your um, uh, connection and awareness of, of things happening in your environment often is in right side. So people talk about their tuition or their gut feeling. I just feel something's off here. Okay, This is their right brain picking up on something that their left brain hasn't yet registered and made conscious yet. Okay, And so until their left brain registers, it's unconscious. Unconscious. So yes, there's something unconscious, and we, we can identify that in a lot of different th- uh, ways. Um, back to the other question, heart-mind, though. Well, it depends. Uh, the, the, sometimes they're used interchangeably. Sometimes they mean different things. Um, so create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Um, so um, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the heart is thinking there. Okay, But um, the new covenant, I will write my law on your heart and Mind. So it's made, so the Bible actually sometimes uses it to mean the same thing, and sometimes, and it's very much because it's the language of us, and sometimes we use it that way. Okay? So the, the mind can be the thinking parts, the reasoning parts, the comprehending parts, the understanding parts, whereas the heart are the, the feeling and pa- compassion parts. Um, and so when we're truly converted, this is, um, have, being so settled in the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that you cannot be moved. Okay, so this would be understanding and also heart devotion toward that would be the heart devotion, your inmost self, secret selves, longings, desires, and preferences. That would be the heart. Okay, and so some people can have in their mind the truth, but their heart is still attached to other stuff, and that would be the the, the split mind. They say, okay, um, on LGBTQ. In one of your um, wonderful seminars, you dealt with the LGBTQ issues. You have said, and I believe it is a good argument at the time, that uh, one cannot uh, give up a nature one does not possess. Uh, it's a little bit misquoted from what I said, but I understand what you're saying. Referencing Romans chapters 1, 26, and 27. And then they quote Romans 20, and so we'll read it. It says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what was against nature. Uh, likewise, also the men leaving the natural use uh, with women, burning lust for one another, uh, men uh, with men commend, uh, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due, unquote. Uh, that was Romans. Romans 126-27. Firstly, does this mean that monogamous LGBTQ relations are not sinful, or have I overinterpreted what you meant? Secondly, I was recently part of a council on LGBTQ, and during my study of biblical material, I realized that the word nature in Romans 1, 27 is not referring to what the individual possesses, but to rather God's created order, uh, and, and that such acts were an act of rebellion against God's creation, nature, uh, that they gave sway to passions that went contrary to God's created intent, and thus they were sinful. If this is true, it seems that this would leave LGBTQ relations as sinful. What are your thoughts? Okay, who'd like to answer this for me? Well, first off, your, your parsing of the text uh, mis, misapplies what's actually said. I agree with your assessment of nature that is referring to God's created order. I agree with that. But then you apply it to the individuals in the Bible, a text that we read. Notice how, what the text said. They exchange natural use for what is against nature. 
Okay? So the nature is God's design in Eden. They exchange natural for, uh, for that. So, again, the text is describing in context in Romans chapter 1, before you get to verse 26, he outlines a whole long list of what? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, and they worshiped images made with their own hands. This is false, pagan, Roman, fertility cult worship going on. What happens naturally to people who worship in those fertility cults? What's the result? They become more Christ-like, more godly? No, it's the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. They debase themselves. And so they become inflamed with desires they didn't naturally have. And so they exchange their natural desires for unnatural ones. Can I exchange this blue shirt for a red shirt if I don't possess a blue shirt? No. The Bible here is not speaking of people that we typically identify in our society as gay. They are speaking of people who were heterosexual and had natural desires, but went into false fertility cult worship and became inflamed with desires they didn't previously have, and they exchanged their natural for unnatural. That's what's happening here. They're debasing themselves. That's the corruption. We would still condemn that today. Metaphorically speaking, a child born blind, the blindness is a result of sin. There would be no blindness, there's no sin. Sin in the world. Who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? Neither. So the blindness is a result of sin, but not an act of sin in the parties that are born blind. Somebody born gay, there would be no gayness if there wasn't sin in the world. But who sinned that this person was born gay? Him or his parents? Neither. But how about if we own a business, and some, some type of construction business, maybe an auto business, and we have our welders weld without eye protection? We don't give them any eye protection to make them weld. What's going to happen? They're going to blind them. We're going to blind them. And if we make them do that or somehow seduce them or trick them into doing that, would, would that be something we should condemn people from doing? We shouldn't, you shouldn't take people who have good vision and knowingly engage them in activities that will blind them. You shouldn't do that. That's wrong. That's damaging. Don't do it. This is what the Bible's talking about. Don't engage in activities that corrupt, that damage, that injure, that warp. Don't exchange the natural things God has given you for the unnatural. Okay? This is happening in our society, I will tell you today, in pornography. But it's also happening in an aggressive LGBTQ politic. The LGBT politic is aggressively trying to seduce heterosexual adolescents into same-sex relationships. I actually had a, a, a young lady come see me, late adolescent, who had never been attracted to a girl in her life, always attracted to boys. But in college, she was seduced. And when she was a little reluctant... She was accused of being judgmental. She was told that gender is something that you can just choose, that that's a, that old idea of just male and female and whatever is part of a religious, uh, corrupt, up in the past of judgmental. And she didn't want to be judgmental. She didn't want to be closed. She wanted to love people. So she engaged in a same-sex relationship that she had no previous attraction for. And she became quite depressed and suicidal and made a suicide attempt. But she also made strong bonds to the person she was involved with, which is what happens. When you get involved with somebody sexually, you neurobiologically change yourself, oxytocin is released, and you make attachments 
where this person becomes more attractive and you feel that you're in love with this person now that you wouldn't have had had you not been involved with them sexually. Neurobiologically, things change. The Bible condemns this type of behavior. But the Bible is silent on people born with intersex condition, hermaphrodites, the Bible doesn't speak about. Androgen insensitivity syndrome, chimerism, so many more uh, transgendered type biological circumstances. The Bible is silent on. doesn't speak about them at all. But if you want to talk about Bible and sexuality, and I find this very interesting, so many Christians are so invested in finding a good Bible pretext to condemn the LGBT community. They're invested in it. But if you talk about the larger landscape of human sexuality, you will understand that Satan hates human sexuality. He hates the procreative gift that God has given us. He wants to destroy that ability and destroy us through that ability. Uh, And he's always been attacking it in various ways with polygamy. Polygamy wasn't part of God's natural order or design. And so if you want to use that same argument, well, doesn't it go against nature? How about headship theology? In God's original design in Egypt, in Eden, in Eden, was Adam or Eve to rule over the other before sin? Ellen White's quite clear on this. She was taken from the side, not from the foot to be ruled over, not from the head to rule over, to be co-equals in authority, in original design. It's against God's original nature for one member of the marriage to rule over another. That's because of sin. If we're going to make that argument, then we should argue against that. It's against his original nature. So is polygamy. It's against the original design. One man, one woman in union. Would you find David being condemned out of heaven for having more than one wife? His, his condemnation was for the betrayal. His conviction by Nathan was the betrayal and the murder, not to more than one wife he already had before that. How about Abraham? How about Jacob? Are they condemned? Do you find any kind of name? It's clearly against God's design, sexually. It's not what he designed. It's against his nature. They're not condemned. They're not barred from heaven. They don't have to make extra sacrifice to God to pay that sin. So I, I, I find it quite, quite, quite fascinating. I think, I think the whole idea of human sexuality um, and the way uh, Satan exploits it is to get Christians to be less than loving to other people who are struggling with sexual issues. I think we need to hold up the ideal. Just like, and I think my approach is to treat it just like blindness. If you had a child or an individual born blind, you would never condemn them for that. But you also wouldn't make the argument to tell everybody, well, because they have a seeing eye dog, the kids wouldn't go, hey, you know, they get to bring their dog to church. Maybe I should go blind so I can have a dog too. You wouldn't look at it and say, That's, that would be a cool thing to become. You would recognize it as something not to esteem and look up to, but you also would not judge it. You also wouldn't say to the blind person, hey, we know you were born blind, and we know you didn't choose this, and we we don't condemn you for it, but we expect you to live like you can see. (laughs) And that's what a lot of Christians do. We know that you weren't born gay. I mean, didn't choose to be gay. We were born this way, and we know it's not your fault, but we expect you to live like you're heterosexual. I will tell you the best approach is judge not that you be not judged. Unless you're in there, every person has to decide in their own heart in the relation with God 
how they are to conduct their life. And for me, I tell parents who are struggling with kids along these issues to not focus on the behavior, focus on character development. Honesty, loyalty, faithfulness, fidelity, truthfulness, trustworthiness, uh, character maturity, and focusing them on building that relationship with Jesus Christ. If there's sin in their life, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict them and deliver them, not yours. But if you begin being the judge and jury and condemning and behavioral modifier, you will alienate these people, and they will, and you will lose any opportunity to be a loving witness. So I, I don't do that. Okay, why is the law of worship, why is the law of worship, which is more than adequate, why is the law of worship, maybe I'm reading this wrong, why is the law of worship, which is more than adequate to make or keep us demonic? Oh, I see what they're saying. Okay, so if you worship the demonic, you'll become demonic. So why is the law of worship, worship being demonic, able to make you demonic, and and then why is the law of worship not sufficient to make us Christ-like, or is it? Well, it is actually part of the plan. By beholding, we become changed. The scripture is very clear on that. Fix your eyes upon Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. Um, those who worship, um, uh, it says in uh, Hosea, they worshiped worthless idols and themselves became worthless. This is a law. We become like what we admire and worship. It is absolutely part of it. And, uh, and, and so as we worship Christ, we surrender to Christ. And as we worship him and esteem him and value him, we trust him more. As we trust him more, we uh, experience more of his presence transforming us. It's part of the whole process. All right. Uh, Happy New Year. We have taught our children the healing message. Recently, we had uh, to take away the cell phone from one of our teenage daughters for not cooperating with family needs. She said that we were implementing Satan's methods of coercion because the cell phone... Because cell phone discipline was arbitrary and not natural consequences for her actions. I was stunned and did not know how to respond because I applaud her under, uh, and, and, and respond because I applaud her understanding. However, I was unsure how to respond. What would you say? It is quite straightforward, folks. Cell phone usage is not a God-given right or, or, or um, physiological need for health. It is a privilege. It is a privilege like any other privilege that is granted based on maturity and capacity to handle the privilege. Like driving a car. We don't let anyone drive a car. There must be some capacity and maturity of handling the vehicle, not driving drunk, and so forth and so on, etc., and so you simply say, of course, of course, um, cell phones uh, are taken away from those who haven't demonstrated the maturity to handle the privilege of cell phone use. And the way we demonstrate maturity in this house is by fulfilling the responsibilities, appropriate age-appropriate responsibilities that are ours to fulfill. And if you can't fulfill those responsibilities, you're letting us know that you can't handle the privileges. And we'd love for you to have this back because we love it for you to. We love to give this to you and and have it available for your use. But you'll need to fulfill the the maturity level to handle the privilege. Yeah. So, and th- that's how you frame that. <laughs> so, uh, Ellen White uh, recommends us to leave the cities uh, when things get bad. Could this principle be interpreted to recommend to moving to Florida or South Dakota <laughs> to try to preserve our freedoms? Yes. <laughs> but only if you don't bring blue state voting with you. <laughs> 
Oh, no, there's a reason why. There is a, there's a real... This is, anybody of eyes to see and ears to hear, understand reality. It's reality, folks. God's government is the government of freedom. Satan's government is the government of coercion. When you take freedom, you destroy love. You destroy capacity for growth. You destroy individuality. It, 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 and people, people who haven't yet surrendered their individuality, who still have an individual, they want to flee. They want to flee that. They want to get their freedom. You can predict this all day long. You can also predict in this world of sin that the unconverted, carnal-hearted people will seek to take advantage of other people. You can predict it as much as I can predict what will happen when I let go of this pen. It's going to fall. Selfish people will act selfishly. Only by grace of God do we have any capacity to love others and, and help others. And so when you defund the police... You can absolutely predict there's going to be more crime. It's completely predictable. Unlike the fantasy of, well, the police are, are the ones causing all the crime. And if we could just get rid of the police, then, then everyone's good nature would come forward, and, and we would all just sit around and sing kumbaya and love each other, and there would only be kindness and advancement for everyone, and no one would take advantage. And, and of course you can predict that, but if you have a biblical worldview, if you have a humanistic worldview, though, which these people do, they can't predict anything. It's com- and, 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 they're, and they're mystified, but... Uh, we predicted this over a year ago when they started talking this way. We told exactly what was going to happen. And sure enough, and now even these individuals who were advocating are all out there now calling for more police. <laughs> they are. Because if you have unconverted selfish people, the way the, the Bible says you have to deal with unconverted selfish people is you have to set boundaries with them. You have to enforce restraint upon them. They have to be restrained. And that's what the civil governments God allows to do to create a certain order to restrain those who would abuse others. It doesn't convert them. It just limits the amount of damage they're able to do to themselves and other people. And so, so yeah, so. Let's see. I know this would be a huge shift in belief, but do you think it would be possible that the reign of Christ has already happened and we are living at the time Satan is being loosed to deceive the nations? Revelation 20. Uh, so, I, there's an aspect that Christ, uh, you know, is reigning in heaven. There's a certain aspect of that. Uh, it's true. Uh, he went up and sat on the right hand of the Father. We read in Hebrews, okay? There's an aspect of that. And, and, and there's an encouraging aspect of that. If you are under a certain pressure in this world, you're discouraged, you're feeling isolated, there's no one in your community that supports your view of God, you feel like you're maybe the only one, like Elijah, feeling like the only one, uh, remember Elisha. There's more for us than is against us. In the landscape of the larger reality, there's way more intelligent beings on our side than on Satan's side. Way more. Okay, We're in the majority, not the minority. But sometimes it can look, uh, look that way. But, but uh, w- when you're specifically referring to Revelation, no. No. Um, this, this time has not yet come. Uh, probation is still being held back. Satan has not yet been given full authority on the earth uh, to, to carry out his uh, final deceptions and persecutions uh, and, to, and to lead the nations in the formation of the, you know, the mag and, Magog and so forth. That is coming. You can see it shaping up, but we're not quite there yet. The, the angel is still telling the angels, hold, hold, hold. 
For the people of God are not yet sealed in their forehead. That's why he's holding. That's the reason. Waiting for the righteous to be settled so they can't be moved. Uh, let's see. The person's asked about Ananias, Fire, and Uzzah. Go to our website, type those in our search engine. I've written blogs on that, so I'm not going to answer that at the moment. Um, when we accept Jesus into our heart, we become changed. Our motivations are changed, as you said. Uh, however, it takes time to develop perfect character. Uh, we are So Bible perfection is not about sinlessness. Bible perfection is about loyalty and willingness to stay faithful to the Lord. So Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. He wasn't sinless, but he could not be shaken out of his trust to the Lord. Even if he didn't understand everything, which he didn't, he was still loyal and faithful. Okay, That's what the final people will be. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. When they're, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they were also perfect. Death could not shake them. The threat of death could not shake them out of their loyalty to the Lord. It's a heart settling so so again settling into the truth intellectually and spiritually you cannot be moved from it okay even the threat of death will not move you from it that's the bible perfection not about um specific task performance so let me see what see see i think um, this thing's jumping around on me i think i'm losing my space or place Okay, um, we are not instantly perfectly restored. I believe that some LNG White Bible references uh, of Jesus' robe of righteousness covering us may account for this period of time uh, because the reality is that we have made a choice for God that we are out. What's your view on this? Um, no, my view on this is that as soon as you accept... Okay, so my view is that as soon as you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your heart has been changed from the natural heart is enmity to God, the natural heart. Enmity does not trust. Abraham trusted God. That means his natural heart had changed from distrust to trust. After his trust, his heart had changed, God recognized the change. God recognized him as righteous. What What does that mean? He's set right. That's what it means. Justification is setting that which is wrong or out of harmony. When you justify the margins on your document, you take what's out of order and you put it in order. The heart of the sinner distrusts God. When we are one to trust, the heart is set right with God. The rest of it is just the cleanup process. That's it. And all those who trust God and stay in trust with God, they grow in that trust. They're transformed in that trust. It's not about the residual symptoms remaining. Look at David, for instance, and many other Bible heroes. It is about the journey of that faith relationship. Uh, The covenant of grace is analogous to the covenant of marriage. He is the groom, we're the bride. And the covenant of marriage is loyalty, faithfulness, staying true to your partner. When times get tough, who do you run to? When you're hurting, who do you go to? When questions arise, when somebody puts a lie in your ear about yourself, who do you go to? Do we always run to Jesus, stay loyal to him, even in the face of death? Job, even if he were to slay me. He wasn't actually saying, I believe he'll slay me. But I trust him so much that like Stephen, if my life right now helps your cause, it's yours, Lord. That trust 
That's faithfulness. That's what it is. I trust you with my life. Jesus as our substitute, our, our, our second Adam at the cross. Walking the journey as a human. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. I trust you with it. Do you have the faith that says, Father, I trust you with my life so much. And I know you're so good that if somehow it was possible that bringing me to heaven was bad for heaven, I trust you not to bring me. Do you trust him that much? Yes. Like when Abraham, he, he was set right, he got his mind right with God, and then he makes mistakes. Is it sort of like a temporary lapse in judgment, but he was still set right? I mean, no, no, re, re, no, no, it, it wasn't a temporary lapse. It was the healing process. So after he set right, he had neurobiological patterns, habit patterns, preconceived ideas, false conceptions, feelings, carnal, carnal temptations. All this stuff was still in him. And so after his heart, he's got a new heart. I desire to live perfectly righteous. And this is Romans 7. When you read Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I sometimes don't do. And the things that I, I don't do, this I really want to do. Okay, And so sometimes what happens is, because of our habit patterns, preconceived ideas, biological weaknesses, we will find ourselves in situations where we reflexively act and do things, and we go, oh, that's not the good I wanted to do. See, when you go, oh, that's not the good I wanted to do, that's your converted heart. Well, why did you do it? Because I have a neurobiology that isn't perfect. Okay? My neurobiology trips me up. I'm sick of it. Oh, who will save me from this body biology of death? Okay? The Lord will. Okay? So there's no unconversion, reconversion going on. That's all penal legal stuff. Once you've had the heart change, you want to live free of all that stuff, and you strive in daily growth. But when those things come, you go to the Lord and say, Lord, here's another place that was just revealed to me. I didn't even see it. I was kind of blind to it. I need some help there. And what you find in the life of Abraham is how God helps him. He helps him by bringing him to circumstances where he has to face those insecurities and fears and make choices to either act to protect self or act to trust the Lord. And he ultimately overcame at Mount Moriah. That's when the Lord finally freed him of his own insecurities and fears, and he really became settled at that point when he trusted him with his son. And so the Lord, Ellen White writes, the Lord brings us over the same ground again and again until we gain the victory. Because God can't change our characters. He can't mature us, even though our hearts want to. He can't free us from those things unless we choose in real time him over the, the, the temptation. And so a person with a porn addiction will be tempted to go look at porn again. And that's when they have to choose to engage Jesus and all the resources he's provided for them. And over the course of time, neurobiologically, what happens? The law of exertion. If you exercise the healthy, they grow stronger. And if you stop exercising something, if you don't use it, you, you actually prune back the neural circuits of old habits as you stop using them. That's what happens in our brains. All right, we're out of time. We've gone over about seven minutes, so uh, I'll pick up any other questions next week. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, and we thank you for the truths that you've given us, and we pray that we can continue to grow in the faith journey, uh, that we can become more like you, beholding you ever more clearly, and being effective agents for you in this, in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.